Welcome back, creeps. Welcome, everybody. We have some exciting news for you this week. We sure do. We sure do. <laughs> that was me struggling. So, we're not going to lie and say that it was planned because... Um, yeah, it really wasn't. Okay, this is like our fourth time trying this <laughs> because our fucking cat decided that it was time to use the litter box just as we hit record. <laughs> Pork chop. She does what she pleases. Yeah, she does. Anyway, our exciting news this week, if you don't follow us on Instagram um, or Twitter, mostly Instagram though, I guess, is that we actually have merch now. Yeah. Totally unplanned, spontaneous merch. Yeah. But thanks to our brilliant follower, Lindsay, she designed us just amazing new logos and stickers. Yeah. Um, we're all on there. Our little family, me, Dulce, Porkshop and Max. Mm-hmm. And sorry, I'm doing all the talking, but I'm excited. <laughs> you, you tell them more. Well, the cool thing is that we gave her um, an idea and she ran with it. And the brilliance of it all and the brilliance of Lindsay is that she took that idea and gave us what she had done. And it was like the first try. You know what I mean? Like there wasn't very much back and forth like change this change that like basically it was it was perfect almost a hundred percent literally like the template you know like the whole design was exactly what we were looking for yeah straight off the bat like she just uh we literally we have just been talking about it non-stop yeah for... it's like we're we were all like on the same brave way was it wavelength <laughs> brain. yeah wavelength brain yeah wavelength. My um, my voice has been fucking up today. I have no idea why. Well, lucky audience. I then. know. <laughs> um, I so look like I'm, I'm sound like I'm a prepubescent boy going into <laughs> puberty. <laughs> so right before we start, um, I w I just want to give her a proper shout out because she actually has her own store now. Um, you can find her on Instagram at Art of Aquarius twenty seven, and she's also on Redbubble with the same name. And also, I should say. That if you want to purchase Weekly Creep merch, find us on Redbubble, which I only learned about this week, thanks to Lindsay. And yeah, we have a whole array of Weekly Creep shit. And the biggest thing for us is Porkchop has her own merch. <laughs> I think, honestly, I think more people are, are going to want to buy things with pork chop on it then our our brand thing our logo yeah and i'm not sad about that no the I picture <laughs> of pork chop is just her in all her in like, all her glory yeah we need to glory. post the picture on instagram so people and uh, side I by side been. oh you have oh, no like but like the real, the real yeah like yeah, basically yeah. the inspiration <laughs> yeah so and as well guys if you see a particular item on there that you're like, hey, shit, I want this, like this image, but on this item, reach out to us, let us know. We can do it. No problem. And we appreciate everybody's input and help and stuff like that. And once again, thank you, Lindsay. And that's all the ranting and raving. Let's get stuck into our stories. Cool. All right. So I'm going first. My sources are good old Wikipedia. 
Wikipedia came through for me for this story. Not like last week. Last like I had no Wikipedia page. Tamara Schaefer of the Chicago Reader, Ray Johnson of Chicago Now, and the Victoria Advocate, which is like an old timey newspaper. Right on. I love finding them. Yeah. So what we're going to be talking about today is the double murder of the Grimes sisters. This oh. is uh, a cold case. Oh, right on. Sorry, yeah. my voice just went there. I tried to say, oh. You were like, oh. Yeah, so <laughs> it wasn't a ghost. Don't worry. It was just me. Just me. This ended up being like the most labor intensive missing persons murder investigation situation <laughs> okay <laughs> so the grime sisters were barbara age 15 and patricia age 12 this happened in southeast chicago illinois around this time eisenhower fun fact was about to start his second term in office oh fancy that yeah so, so wait li- sorry what year was it i'm sorry 1956 <laughs> december 28th 1956 is when all this shit went down okay cool born to joseph and loretta grimes along with five other siblings barbara attended thomas kelly high and patricia attended saint maurice which was a k through eight school the relationship the two had was a positive one they were very close and almost always together loretta and her children lived on 36 34 south damon in mckinley park loretta and joseph had divorced in december of 1951 it was amicable and joseph had regular contact with his children cool so the story goes the girls went to brighton park movie theater located at 4223 south archer to watch a double feature of love me tender starring elvis presley for the 11th time (laughs) wait (laughs) (laughs) yeah like they literally no they literally went to go watch this this was the 11th time oh i thought you were taking the piss because we just said that twice no that fucking hell fair play to them well they were huge presley fans yeah i mean i guess everybody was back then right not the conservative right (laughs) they thought his everything well they thought his gyrating was Uh too provocative (laughs) (laughs) turns me on every time Uh, okay so what's a double feature just for people that don't know a double feature is a two for one basically you get to watch two films uh so it's it could be two films or a major film with some shorts for the price of one ticket yeah it sounds really fun to be honest yeah quentin tarantino did that with um the three movies yeah I yeah know, i can't think of any of them the one with grindhouse the grindhouse um was and it? death proof yeah and then the, the there was Russell. another one wasn't it i didn't know i thought it was only two so oh maybe I'm, it might have been yeah he licks her foot um right so before they left they told their mother that they would be home before midnight and they ended up leaving their home at 7.30 p.m. No one knows how they actually got to the theater. It's assumed that they must have walked or taken the bus. Dorothy Weinhart 
a friend of Patricia, was at the same double feature as the sisters and reported seeing them both. She knows that they were there because she was sitting behind them. And she said that they seemed to be enjoying themselves. And she actually left at the intermission. Oh, so she skipped out on the next film? Yeah. But on her way out, she saw that the Grimes sisters were queuing up in the line to get, you know, More at the concession. Yeah. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so that was, the intermission was at 9.30 p.m. The second feature ended around 11.30 p.m. So midnight came and there was no sign of the girls at the Grimes home. Their mother had sent Teresa Grimes, age 17, and Joey Grimes, age 14, to the bus stop by their residence to wait for the girls' arrival. While at home, the mother stayed behind to contact her children's friends to see if maybe they ended up at any of their houses. Yeah, yeah. She tried to contact people, but I guess nobody was picking up. Yeah, it's late and it's the 50s. They probably disconnected the phone in case it caught fire. Or they just ignored the ringing. A couple buses came and went, but still no sign of the sisters. So Joey and Teresa went home. By 2.15 a.m., Loretta was at the Chicago Police Department filing a missing persons report for Patricia and Barbara. At first, their disappearance was not taken seriously. The police assumed the girls had probably ran away. Or <laughs> Why is that always their answer? I don't know. Maybe it was Elvis. I don't know. Yeah. They're they're like, oh, fans of Elvis. Elvis yeah. Maybe they ran away. They're uh, whores. <laughs> Um, another assumption was that they might have gone to their boyfriend's house. They didn't have boyfriends. Okay. It's just the police again. Yeah, just assuming. Loretta insisted that wasn't the case as they didn't take extra clothes or money or anything that would indicate that they'd be, that they'd planned to be gone for a while. The girls made front page news by December 31st, but the police didn't seriously consider this a serious missing persons case until a whole week after they vanished. Fuck's sake. Once they did, the leads started coming in. Now, even though they had these, like, predetermined assumptions, the next morning the task force was already formed and they were looking for the sisters but like I said, they didn't really take it seriously until after a week had passed. Yeah. After it was too late, basically. Well, yeah, basically. Along with the task force, additional police forces from surrounding areas had joined the search, including local volunteers. They knocked on doors. They searched bodies of water. Uh, a church, their church, I think it was, offered a $1,000 reward information leading to their whereabouts and all the while the media covered the situation heavily hmm. so i did the inflation calculation <laughs> that's our favorite thing a thousand dollars for 1959 money <laughs> it equals to nine thousand and twelve dollars and 94 cents in today's money fucking hell the police were flooded with reports of sightings most likely from the media coverage and the cash reward. But there was no hard evidence. 
of the reports included the ones from teenagers who were at the movies the night the Grimes sisters disappeared. Their statements described the two talking to a man who looked a lot like Elvis Presley, and then they reported seeing them get into his Mercury car. CTA driver Joseph Smock thought they'd exited his bus at Archer and Western Avenues at 11.05 p.m. Jack Franklin, a Northwest Side security guard, offered directions to two girls he later concluded were Barbara and Patricia. He'd passed them near Lawrence and Central Park Avenues on the morning of December 29th. Another classmate of Patricia's, Catherine Borak, eating at Angelo's restaurant at 3551 South Archer, thought she saw the younger sister walk by at 6.30 p.m. Saturday with two girls she didn't recognize. So she just, they both disappeared on a Friday. Right, right. On January 1st, the girls were identified as CTA passengers by a Damon Avenue driver. So CTA, I'm guessing, is like a public transportation. Yeah, yeah. During the following week, several people in Inglewood reported seeing them. George Pope, a night clerk at the Unity Hotel at 750 West 61st Street, 61 Street. claimed he refused them a room at 9 p.m. on January 2nd. Three Kresge employees believe the girls spent time near the record counter on January 3rd listening to Elvis songs. Like, it, they got so many fucking, like, eyewitness reports, like, just seeing them everywhere. Yeah. A series of ransom letters led Loretta Grimes, escorted by FBI agents, on a dawn train ride to Milwaukee on January 12th. One of the letters instructed her to sit in a downtown Catholic church and put $1,000 beside her on the pew. It was promised that Barbara Grimes would walk in and retrieve the money, deliver it at some nearby point, then return with Patricia. The letters were later found to have come from an institutionalized mental patient. Wow. The crazy thing is that wasn't the only ransom letter she got. She got like two more. People can be really sick. Yeah. She got callers like at her home residence. Oh, callers. I thought you meant like callers, like, like a cat. Oh, a no. A dog collar. Like she got callers. Okay. No. She, well, she got phone calls. And then some were anonymous. Some she probably recognized who it, were, who it was from. But a lot of these call, some of these callers were supportive you know, but others were not. The ones that weren't had said that it has served her right for letting her girls go out late, that late, or basically that they got what they deserved. So just assholes, basically. Basically. A letter had been sent to the Chicago Sun-Times on January 1957 that read, Outside the show, we all got to talking and we exchanged phone numbers. When we got to the street where we turned off, we said goodbye, and we ran across the street. Then Betty forgot something she had to tell Barbara, and we ran back to the corner. A man, about 22 or 25, was talking to them. He pushed Barbara in the back seat of the car and Pat in the front seat. We got part of the license number as a car drove by us. The first four numbers were 2184. Betty thinks... There were three or four numbers after that. 
When we heard that they went missing, we didn't know what to do. Jesus Christ. And that was anonymous? Yeah. Did that letter mention anything about the person looking like Elvis? Uh, No. Oh, okay. Because I, I was really hoping that that would be a lead. Mm. Like some guy pretending to be Elvis outside the Elvis movie. <laughs> Being like, hey, you little lady. Yeah. Wallace and Anne Tolston, whose daughter Sandra was a classmate of Patricia's, received two mysterious phone calls around midnight on January 14th. The first call woke Mr. Tolston, who hung up when Owen spoke. Miss Tolston answered the second call 15 minutes later and, ha- and heard a voice ask, Is that you, Sandra? Is Sandra there? Before they could awaken Sandra, the caller hung up. Miss Tolston was convinced that the voice which she described as frightened and depressed had been that of Patricia Grimes. Oh, shit. On January 15th, switchboard operator Ann Dorian received a bizarre phone call at the Central Police complaint room. A man, declining to identify himself, insisted that the girls were dead and could be found in Santa Fe Park, an unincorporated area of Lyons Township. This revelation, he said, came from a dream. The police traced the call to Green's Liquor Market at 6108 South Halstead and identified the caller as Walter Krantz, a 53-year-old steam fitter. He ended up being one of the suspects. He was questioned and released. Um, he was like a self-proclaimed psychic. Like oh. he said that it came from his family. Like it was like down to generation. Yeah. And he said that he can only see these things when he, like after he'd been drinking, like he needed alcohol to like set off these things. Uh, but there's another reason why he was a, a suspect, which I'll touch on later. Oh, okay. Reports were actually coming in as far away as Memphis, Tennessee. People claimed to have seen the girls at a bus station in Elvis's hometown and were probably, and they assumed that they were probably there to visit their idol or go to one of his concerts. Presley's Graceland Estate released a statement to the media on January 19, 1959, that read, If you are good Presley fans, you'll go home and ease your mother's worries. Presley himself made a plea to the girls on the radio to return home to their mother. Wow, that's this was a huge deal. It was huge, yeah. As time passed, people feared that they had met a similar fate of three boys who were also Chicago natives who had turned up nude, dead, in a forest preserve northwest of Chicago on October 18th, 1955. So just like a year before. Yeah. Their ages were around the same as the girls. Robert Peterson was 14. John Schusler, 13. And his brother Anton was 11. The boys were also supposed to come back from a movie, but did not make it home. Their bodies had been dumped from a car into a ditch by the by a river they had been beaten and strangled so it's almost the exact same except yeah here's two or three kids yeah three boys sorry rather than the two girls mm-hmm. on a deserted road in willow springs 
on January 22nd, 1957, almost a month after they'd gone missing. The girls were found. Willow Springs is 20 minutes away from Brighton Park, which is where they lived. Right. The distance between the two places is 13.7 miles, so not that far at all. And Willow Springs is only 20 miles from the Robinson Woods where the boys were found. So this is all like very close to yeah, each other. Yeah. 39-year-old Leonard Prescott, who was on the way to buy groceries, noted some flesh-colored things that looked like mannequins behind the guardrail. He went back to the spot with his wife, Marie, so she could help him take a closer look. When I read this, I was like, who would do that? Like, would I mean, you do unless that? Unless they didn't have a telephone at the time. That's the only thing I can think of. But it's like, why wouldn't he go check himself? And I wonder if he ever got those groceries. Or did he go straight home for his wife? You, you wouldn't know back then. People are like, ah, oh, mm-hmm. look at that. Kind of looks like bodies. Milk, 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 milk. Uh, <laughs> maybe. We'll be back in a second. <laughs> Don't go anywhere. <laughs> so they went back to the spot and Marie got out of a car to take a closer look. And when she saw, she fainted. Oh, shit. Leonard had to carry his wife back to their car. I bet he was <laughs> regretting it then. They then went to report what they found to the police. The girls' bodies lay upon a flat horizontal section of snow-covered ground directly behind the guardrail, which extended for just 10 feet before the incline of the embarkment of Devil's Creek. Barbara lay on her left side with her legs drawn up slightly with her legs drawn slightly up towards her torso. Patricia lay on her back with her body covering her sister's head, and her own head turned sharply to the right. It's believed that the sisters had most likely been driven to this location in a car with their bodies then being dragged or lifted out of the vehicle then placed or thrown behind the guardrail three wounds resembling those typically inflicted by ice picks were discovered upon barbara's chest and injuries resembling blunt force trauma were visible upon her face and head whereas numerous injuries resembling bruises were also discovered upon Patricia's face and body. And also, they were completely nude. Jesus Christ. Yeah. On the scene were Sheriff Joseph Lohman, Under Sheriff Thomas Brennan, and Harry Gloss. The men determined that the bodies had been there before the snowfall on January 9th, as the bodies were frozen. Wow. But the thing is, they were like, uh, I'll get to it later. There's a lot of coldness going on here. I mean, temperature-wise. Yeah, yeah. The girl's father, Joseph Grimes, was driven to the crime scene to formally identify both bodies, and he confirmed that it was them. Back at Loretta's home, the news had reached her. She cried to the police, You wouldn't believe me. It's so sad. Oh, Jesus, yeah. Poor woman. I know. The autopsy showed that the girls had died five hours after they'd been seen alive in Brighton. So... All these reports about seeing them like. Yeah, I was kind of thinking that they're like two young ones, especially back in the 50s. It's not like 
not to say people weren't individuals, but like, you know, different styles almost had a, a uniform back then, you know? Mm. So I'd say it could have been very likely to... Mistake. Yeah, just two other yeah. young ones. like Their stomach contents coincide with what they would have had at the theater. There were three forensic pathologists who had done the autopsies for the girls, and all three concluded that the girls were murdered and died of shock and exposure. Their internal temperatures were lowered below the critical level compatible with life. They were left out to die in the cold. I guess, yeah. Okay. Toxicology also showed no signs of drugs or alcohol. There were not any fatal wounds found on the bodies. So, like, the wounds that they did have were just superficial, I guess. I guess that's the word for it. Yeah, yeah, like, just not enough to... To kill them. Yeah. There were puncture wounds, like I mentioned before, but those puncture wounds and all that other stuff had happened post-mortem. Obviously, the bruises happened before they died because you can't bruise a dead body. How do I know that? Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Barbara's and Patricia's body both showed signs of rape around the time that they had died. The reports, and this is just, and this is me saying this. Okay. Because these sources say, um, like, it could be, like, they, it showed signs of, either consensual or non-consensual sexual intercourse but i'm just like yeah it was right okay wait a minute i understand that like blatant rape traces you know like abrasion and on the labia and, and all that stuff yeah those are like obvious signs of rape right but like there is nothing consensual about being kidnapped <laughs> yeah yeah you no know matter what, I mean? what happened yeah 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 like like whether the the signs on the body didn't coincide with like I guess you would say like an obvious rape doesn't mean shit. Doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Yeah. The autopsy also showed that they were likely on the side of the road for three weeks as opposed to two, like the cops had believed. Just think about that. Police didn't take this seriously a week until a week after they had disappeared. That means while they were just being very milk toast about the situation is am i using that word right i have no idea I've never while they're being before. like very blase about it that whole time like they could have probably solved this because they and they've let all that time go by yeah yeah of course you know they could have found them sooner they could have yeah. preserved any evidence that might have been around the bodies um you know shit like that it probably like snowed and then melted and then snowed and and that was one of the things that they were criticized for again because they let a lot of untrained police officers like just walk all over the fucking crime scene yeah yeah no gloves or nothing yeah despite these official conclusions the chief investigator of the cook county coroner's office harry gloss disagreed with the official time of death later stating to the media that there had been numerous marks of violence on those girls' faces, strongly indicative of their being the recipients of violence as opposed to post-mortem rodent infestation. Because that's what the autopsies showed. That's what they were blaming the puncture wounds on. So Gloss believed that they had marks of violence, right? Like just, you know, like they were getting beat on and blah, blah, blah. Which they did 
but they also had like bites and shit indicative of them being there for that long of a time oh you know okay. and so he was just trying to clean his clear his own i don't know what the fuck he was okay. trying to do but like you mean to tell me that there is absolutely no rodent marks on these human bodies that have been sitting there for three weeks yeah yeah you know like nature gets hungry you know Gloss also contended that a thin layer of ice found encrusted upon the sisters' bodies indicated that they had most likely been alive until at least January 7th, since only after that date would there have been sufficient snowfall to react with the girl's natural body heat in such a climate, and thus create the layer of ice discovered upon their nude bodies in this location. Gloss contended this proved their bodies had been warm when they had been deposited behind or beside German Church Road since only after January 7th had there been sufficient snow to create such an ice layer upon and around their bodies. Now, like, when, when you, you think about both, like, it both seem plausible, you know? The rodent infestation thing, I don't buy. But, like, he's saying, like, oh, there's this very specific type of ice film that formed over the girls' bodies, you know, that would have only happened if their bodies were warm. Yeah. Okay. Who are we to say? Like, I mean, they weren't, we weren't there. Yeah. You know, like, that could have also been true. It sounds true. It sounds, like, possible, I guess, you know? But I think it's weird how he's, like, no, they were alive all the way until January 7th. But the autopsy is like, nah, dude. Like, hey, He's just trying to... I don't know. It's weird. It's really weird. Like, why would you fight with the coroner? Like, I don't understand. It sounds like he's just trying to grab grasp at straws. Like, Maybe. I don't know. To make themselves not seem quite as shit. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. In addition to these facts, Gloss also stated that both girls had been subjected to sexual assaults throughout their period of captivity adding that the autopsy conducted upon Patricia had discovered semen within the vaginal fluid swathed from her body and that curdled milk had also been found in Barbara's stomach when she is not known to have drunk milk either at her home or at the cinema on the evening of December 28th. So it's like these things like was he fucking there at the autopsy like like he know it the things that he's saying so specific it's like that's what i'm saying like it could be true you know like i why would you say things on the fly like that about this very sensitive topic and you got to be sure what the fuck you're saying yeah you know it's crazy anyways so the suspects the first one was edward bedwell he was a 20 year old drifter who is semi-illiterate, from Tennessee. He supposedly bore a strong resemblance to Elvis Presley. He worked as a part-time dishwasher in a Chicago Skid Row restaurant. The owners of the restaurant told police that Bedwell and his friend William Cole Willingham were with two girls that physically resembled the Grimes sisters there at the restaurant. He was formally charged with the murders on January 27th, 
soon after giving a confession that he and Willingham had the girls with them until January 7th. He said they spent their time drinking in saloons on West Madison Street, beat the girls, fed them hot dogs, and killed them after they had refused their sexual advances. Loretta caught wind of this and said it was all lies because they didn't even know where West Madison was. Fun fact, he was tried and acquitted in 1956 for the rape of a 13-year-old girl in Florida. Anyways, Willingham admitted to being with two girls. You know, Willingham's his friend. He admitted, yeah, I was with two girls. But he denied that they were the Grimes sisters and denied murdering anybody. Bedwell eventually recanted his story, saying he was stuck in a hotel room for four days with police as they chorused his confession out of him by promising his release if he did so. After the autopsy came back, it was obvious that the confession was false as there were no alcohol or hot dogs in the bodies. So it just sounds like to me the police are just trying to cover their tracks as much as possible. Yeah, it does. I don't know. Like it's everything is so crazy about this fucking story. Like the details, you know. The next suspect was Max Fleeg. He was a 17-year-old suspect who, under law, could not be subject to a polygraph test. Nonetheless, he voluntarily took one and, during the test, allegedly confessed to the murders of the sisters. None of this was admissible in court. They had no evidence, so they had to let him go. Fun fact, he was jailed later for the murder of a woman. What the? F- where are they getting these guys? Well, I, I suppose there's a reason why they're being taken in. And the last suspect that they had in custody was Walter Krantz, our friend Walter Krantz, the psychic. Right, right. The, the alcoholic psychic. Mm-hmm. The reason why he was a suspect was because turns out that his tips were almost completely accurate as the bodies were a mile away from where Krantz said they would be. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, yeah. But he didn't do it. Like, for definite, like, 100%. Yeah. Well, maybe he was just a psychic then. I know. That's all like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> now, the last suspect that was not questioned, like, the last suspect that was not questioned, taken in, or anything like that, was a guy named Charles Leroy Melquist. There were some similarities between the case of the Grimes sisters and Bonnie Lee Scott. So, on September 22nd, 1958, a 15-year-old sophomore, Bonnie Lee Scott, from York High School, did not return home. In his confession, Melquist stated that he picked up Bonnie at her house in Addison at around 8 p.m. on September 22nd. And while sitting in his vehicle, they started, quote, playing around, end quote. As part of that play, he'd taken a satin pillow and held it against her face. He said that he must have held it on her face too long because he noticed that she wasn't breathing. At that point, he stripped off her clothes and stuffed them under his front passenger seat. He then drove the body to 95th and LaGrange Road, where he rolled her body over the guardrail 
like a sack and then drug the body by the feet about 15 feet into a thicket and left. So Melquist met Bonnie at a carnival and they'd become friends. He met her when he was 20 and she was 15. He painted a picture of like, oh, you know, we didn't see each other you know, and and like sexually interested in each other. I was more of like her big brother, blah, blah, blah. You know, like she was, he was her confidant. She would call him whenever she had problems with her boyfriend, blah, blah, blah. And he would just kind of listen. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, 20 years old and a 15 year old. Come on. But this is a picture he painted. He said that for days, he couldn't believe he killed her and thought he might've dreamt the whole thing. He said that he returned to the body on Friday, September 26. He then stated that he returned a month later and took a large hunting knife with him. He said that he had the urge to cut off Bonnie's head. He threw the head about 20 yards from the body and started slashing the torso. He said that he returned to the body a third time but was scared away by someone walking nearby. It was then that he said he threw the knife on the east side of LaGrange Road and drove to Irving Park Road and Elmhurst Road where there was a bonfire. Only then did he dispose of Bonnie's clothes and the fire that had been under his front passenger seat for over a month. What's further fucked up about this guy is that while she was missing, he drove Scott's grandmother around to help look for Bonnie. Oh, that's what they always fucking do that. Yeah. He also was very involved in like the police investigation, like being like super helpful. Yeah. Helpful. Yeah. Obviously, you mean that sarcastically. (laughs) He was eventually tried and charged for Bonnie's murder and was sentenced to 99 years in prison. His attorney saw to it that he would not be questioned for the Grimes murders, as he was already serving time for the Scots murders. What a load of bollocks. I know. Literally sounds like down to a T. Like. Yeah, exactly. So, let me tell you a little about this guy named Ray Johnson. Ray Johnson, um, he's still very actively trying to solve the Grimes murders, like, to this day. He's written some articles for Chicago Now about the murders, and in one of them, he lists very compelling reasons why he thinks Melquist is the one responsible for the death of the sisters. By the way, he also believes that more than one person was involved, whereas the Scots murder, he likely, he believes that he likely acted alone. Yeah, well, even just the second uh, victim, like... Huh? Like the fact that there was two victims... Yeah. Like the two sisters. Mm-hmm. Like physically. I mean, possibly. Seems more plausible, I suppose. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just putting words together <laughs> into a microphone. Don't take my fucking word for it. So the first reason, the phone call to Loretta Grimes, both before and after the murder of Bonnie Lee Scott, because he actually did call Loretta. Melquist. He called? Loretta. Okay, okay. Detective Sheldon Teller was one of the lead investigators in the Grimes case while he was also selling narcotics for mob boss Sam Giancana. Sheldon Teller was using an informant in his narcotics case 
who was a 19-year-old Army veteran named Chuck. Melquist was an Army veteran where he learned a technique for rendering women unconscious. Wow. Sheldon Teller was one of the first people through the door of Melquist home during the execution of the search warrant and retrieved Melquist's telephone book, which contained the names of at least two neighbors of the Grime Girls. Melquist, whose family did not have much money, was represented by Sam Giancana's attorney, Robert McDonald, who later married Giancana's daughter, Antoinette. So, you see, like, the conflict of interest, like the lawyer is involved oh, with yeah, this absolutely. mob boss. Yeah. And it makes so much more sense as to how, like, an attorney worth his money would absolutely have pulled that whole, I'm not going to let you question my client yeah, 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 for a fucking murder that's almost identical. You know what I'm saying? That only happened a few miles from where you found those girls bodies you know what i'm saying yeah yeah that's why he thinks like there's a lot of crooked shit going on here another reason a three-pronged garden fork was found in the trunk of milquist's car patricia grimes had shallow wounds three evenly spaced puncture wounds on her chest that were unexplained remember people thought that they were ice picks yeah yeah but it but they actually match this garden fork that they found in Melquist's car. Come on. I know. Keep in mind that if Melquist would have used this fork on the Grimes girls, their bodies would have been frozen, in which case the fork would not have been able to penetrate as far, leaving shallow wounds. Okay. Like because he would have gone back to the bodies. Yeah. Basically like he did with Scott because he went back three times with Scott. Yeah. Melquist was identified by a neighbor of the Grimes girls as having been in the Grimes house the day the girls went to the movies. What? Why? I have no fucking clue. Well, okay. So, he was probably around Teresa's age, the older sister. Okay. If he was at the Grimes house because the Scott murder happened in 58. The girls went missing in 56. In 58... Melquist was 20. Yeah, yeah. So maybe he just pretended to be a friend of Teresa's. A government psychiatrist stated that Melquist had the exact personality of someone who would have committed the Grimes murders. Melquist's method of rendering his victims unconscious by using a military hole to cut off blood flow to the brain. He used this technique on many of his prior girlfriends who did not die. They were left with red blotches on their faces from pedicae or pedicae, which is basically small capillary bursting, like on their faces. Yeah. The Grimes girls had this type of bruising on their faces that was initially thought to be from a beating, but the autopsy ruled out a physical beating, but could not rule out suffocation as a possible cause of death. So, like, the way they did the autopsy is, like, because it was so hard to figure out, they just went, like, process of elimination. We're like, okay, it's not this. It's not this. You know, they were able to rule out a ton of things, but there were some things that were left over that they couldn't rule out. Yeah. Right, right. 
Since the Grimes girls had no trace of physical trauma and toxicology results were negative, their official cause of death was shock from exposure to cold temperatures. Uh, lastly, the location where the Grimes girls were found, German Church Road, just east of County Farm Road, was a very short si distance where Bonnie Lee Scott's body was found. So these are all the reasons why Johnson believes that it was Melquist. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, because of that crooked-ass attorney who has mob connects and also apparently police connects. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, they go fucking hand-in-hand, hand, don't they? Yeah. So Melquist ended up only serving eight years of his 99 years prison sentence. When he got out, he eventually got married, had two girls, then eventually divorced his wife, and he only just died in 2010. Fucking hell. I'm... A, it sounds like he might have lived a full life. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Just because a suspect's her dead doesn't mean that Johnson's going to stop looking for connections. Yeah, he's connections. still going to try and prove it. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, it sounds like he's fucking proven it to me. Like, you know what I mean? But if you are interested in joining, if you're interested um, in helping or you have leads or whatever, uh, there is a Facebook group called help solve chicago's grime sisters murders so you can click a link we'll put it in the episode description and then you can request to join or you can submit your leads to www.cookcountysheriff.com slash sheriff's police slash cold case slash cold case barbara and pat oh cold case patricia and pat uh, cold case patricia and Pat. Ah, we'll have them in the show notes guys don't worry about it damn it let me say it <laughs> uh you can also submit your leads to uh com slash sheriff police slash cold case slash cold case barbara and patricia grimes there you go are you sure yes <laughs> the subjects that we deal with are 99 percent of the time gonna be horrible yeah. I know, but to me, a case like that is so fucking frustrating. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> in my experience, cold cases are very frustrating. Well, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there's no end. It's like when you read a book and there's no ending. Well, yeah. Or like The Sopranos. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're just so frustrated. But obviously, this is nowhere near a TV show. This is real life people. These are people's... Yeah, like for the family. Can you imagine? Yeah, these are people's family. families. But yeah. as far as I'm concerned, based purely on the information that you have given me today, it's fucking Melquis. Yeah, I think so too. I feel so bad for these girls because they're just little girls. And they're like, oh, you know, they were inseparable. And they're like each other's best friends and shit. And it's just so sad. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like... My little sisters are like that. Me yeah. and Nana are like that. You exactly. Know what I mean? That's what I thought because the age difference, like um, Patricia was only three days away from her 13th birthday. So they would have been three years apart, just like Mimi and Nana are three years apart. Yeah. Like now, because Mimi's 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well done. Thanks. <laughs> well done on telling the story. Clearly, it's hard for you to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and by all means if anybody 
I mean, who lives in Chicago or whatever. Yeah. Like their grandparents might know something or some bullshit. Yeah. Okay, my turn. Ah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a very long one. <laughs> ah, ah. The lies yeah, you right. tell. <laughs> I do not. Um, no, but for this story, I bought this book. And because I had read a little bit about it, and then I realized the person involved had actually written the book about his experience. So I thought, you know what, fuck it. I'm going to get the book and try and do it as much justice as possible. The name of this book is The Demon of Brownsville Road. And it's by Bob Cranmer and Erica Manfred. Is that Brownsville, Texas? No, it's uh, Brownsville, Pittsburgh, oh. Pennsylvania. Erica Man- Manfred was basically like a ghostwriter. No pun intended. Helping Bob Cranmer put his story into words. And I'm going to get started. That is my main source for this week. I have other bits and pieces from like newspapers scattered throughout this. And by the way, this is going to be very long. Hopefully only two parts because I don't want to drag it out. Also, before I start, I will be quoting from the book every now and then. So if somebody gets the book and then they see, oh, he's taking it word from word. There are sections that I have just taken word for word. So anyway... An 11-year-old Bob Cranmer and his friend are hanging around on Brownsville Road. His friend dares him to go into the haunted house which has been sitting there abandoned for years. The big wooden door was painted white, complete with a brass knocker. I went up and knocked on the door tentatively and tried the brass handle a few times, but it was securely locked. I kicked the door as hard as I could, but it was sturdy and my tennis shoes didn't move it an inch. In a last-ditch effort, I turned away and walked back a few feet so I could get a running start. I ran up to try and kick I ran up to try and jump kick it open like in the movies. <laughs> Before I could lift my foot, the door swung open on its own oh. with a menacing, creaky sound. The two boys shit themselves and run <laughs> away. <laughs> this house is not even the house that we're talking about today. The house that we're gonna be talking about is across the street and up a block from that house. But it has a very interesting link that I am not going to get to in this episode at all. So there you go, creeps. Cliffhanger! Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> and that's the end of it. No. <laughs> <laughs> See you next time, creep. <laughs> <laughs> so as a young fella, Bob Cramer grew up in Brentwood, just or like a little while away from brownsville road and this particular house that we're talking about today 3406 brownsville road had this like strange magnetic draw to him even when he was a boy so he would often find himself walking past it like on the way to his friends or going wherever and anytime he got there he just was in awe of this big house and he would just stop and like stare and admire it and just you know like he thought this house was the dog's bollocks and he would think like the people in there must be so rich and so happy and you know typical like boy shit i know there's a few houses that i used to walk past or i would think the same thing when i, I was mean a kid. yeah there's some houses in river oaks now where i think the same fucking exact thing the things are monstrously huge 
Yeah. So that this was the house for him. Like I said, the house was located near where he grew up. And in the 70s, Brentwood started to change and just kind of get, not even run down, but basically the kids in town started acting up and it kind of got a shitty name for itself. And Bob fell in with like the local tough guys yeah, and turned into a pretty rebellious I have little heck razor here. Mm. He knew himself he wasn't all that bad, but he was just, you know, trying to fit in with the yeah. the cool dudes. Yeah, he wanted to be cool. Yeah. All that shit. But his brother he had a he had a few brothers, but his oldest brother, I think it was, had like moved away from home and was living with his wife and all that. But they broke up and the brother came back. And when the brother moved back in, he had found Jesus. And he just wanted, you know, everybody to feel this love from Jesus and yeah i will say this book is extremely preachy if stuff like that offends you don't read the book but anyway he was trying to save bob Uh. you know from himself this whole time he was trying for hours and hours and eventually it worked Mm. but bob still didn't want to be like you know this jesus freak and anytime he would say to his friends like oh no like i don't want to go do whatever like they just start making fun of him which is what kids do yeah kids are assholes sometimes all the time (laughs) not my kids well you know nieces and nephews people don't worry so it's the night of senior prom and bob is sort of transitioning from being an asshole to being a little bit more mature but him and his friends decide that they're not going to go to the senior prom because that is for losers apparently instead what they do is they drive down to pittsburgh where the prom was taking place on a party boat on the river the lads are hammered and they drive to a bridge where the party boat is going to be passing underneath and they stand at the end of the bridge and they piss off the edge onto all the people on the party boat. Oh, no. I had, I yeah, I really thought this was funny. Disgusting, but hilarious. Oh. So, you know, the people down on the boat are screaming back up like, fuck off and all this, like, no, covered in piss. Gross. Yeah. <laughs> but after this, then the guys are like, you know, all amped up and, you know, giddy and drunk and shit. Yeah. And one of his friends puts a rock through this big window of a furniture store. And they were, their car was parked right in front of it. They go to get into the car t- to take off. And they've got a flat tire. So they all have to leg it. They all run away in different directions. But Bob is six miles from home. It's after 2 a.m. and he was freezing. Being out in the car, he only had like a t-shirt on. But now all of a sudden he's walking home in the middle of the night. Freezing cold and He says a prayer to Jesus to ask for help. And again, people, this is all according to the book, not me, but this is a quote. As I walked alone in the dark next to the towing J&L steel mill, suddenly a two-door Buick with two very large men in the front seat approached. I held out my thumb. I was nervous, but relieved that someone had actually stopped to pick me up. I got in the back seat when the door opened. I'm going to Brentwood, I said, but neither man turned around to look at me. There was no conversation, no questions, and I began to feel uneasy as they quietly talked to each other at a level that I couldn't hear. These two guys are so big that their shoulders touched in the front bucket seats. And what was even weirder was that both had on the same loose-fitting Hawaiian flower print shirt. When they finally reached the border of Brentwood and the city, one of them simply said, This is where you get out. And I did, quickly. The door closed 
and they made a left-hand turn off of Brownsville Road, which basically took them right back in the same direction we had just come, which seemed a little strange. I stopped on the sidewalk, silent and alone at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I found myself in front of 3406 Brownsville Road. This was a major turning point in his life, right? Mm -hmm. He decided that these two Hawaiian shirt-wearing giants (laughs) were angels. Mm. And a direct answer to his prayer to Jesus. So this is where he stopped being a dickhead. A few more little things kept bringing him back to the house. Like his sister-in-law actually bought a crib from an estate sale in the house. And Bob had gone off to like, he got a job with the army and, you know, moved around a few different states and all this. And got married and all that shit. So when Bob hears that his sister-in-law had got this nice crib from his house. He was like really jealous, but he ended up getting it from her as like a hand-me-down when he had kids and eventually it ended up back in the same room that the sister had bought it from like years before in 3406 Brownsville. Weird. Yeah, stuff like that kept happening, like small bits and things, but it was enough that he was convinced that this house was, you know, meant for him. Yeah. So when Bob was older... And he and his wife had decided it was time to move back to Brentwood. His mom, who was a retired realtor, heard through the grapevine that the house was for sale. And so they just kind of got like first dibs. The people were pretty eager to move out. So Bob and Lisa just think like, this is perfect. Like what good news. So they go to the house for a viewing. And I'm pretty sure it was like a done deal. Regardless, like, they both knew that they wanted it and all that. So he calls the family, the previous owners, they're called the McHenrys in the book. That's a pseudonym? Yeah. He's not their real name. He was covering up for legal reasons and all that. And privacy, yeah. yeah. So the McHenrys told them that the reason they were moving was that Mrs. McHenry had gotten a job, like, further away. And they had to move. Bob said that he was a little disheartened during the walkthrough because of the way the owners were behaving. It was like they were hiding something. They were just being shady. So they go down to the basement where they had like, it was some sort of old school furnace with a new boiler or some shit. So Mr. McHenry was just showing them how everything operates and stuff. And while they're down there, Bob's wife, Lisa, realizes that Bobby is the son. That might get a little bit confusing, but Bob is the dad. Bobby is the son. (laughs) Um, anyway, he's gone missing and there's multiple rooms in the basement, but like not proper rooms. They're just like divided up with like plywood or something. I don't know. And she asks Jessica, the daughter, if she's seen Bobby, Jessica is visibly uncomfortable and she just shakes her head and she says, I don't like it down here. I want to leave. But Bob is like, you know, whatever, just being a little girl and he's probably off exploring like he's a kid. But at this point, he does take note that the basement door is closed and he was the last one to come into the basement and he left it open. So he notices at this point that Mr. McHenry is looking like trying to catch Mrs. McHenry's attention and seems pretty nervous. But when Mrs. McHenry realizes what's going on, she just bolts it, runs back upstairs. And as she opens the door... They hear Bobby crying, like wailing. So Lisa runs after her, runs after her, 
and through the house and to the foyer where Bobby is stood on the first floor. Sorry, not the first floor, but the first landing. The stairs is like split and he's just sobbing his heart out. Can't get his words out. His eyes are shut tight and his mouth is open like he is just a picture of fright. So Mrs. McHenry grabs him, wraps her arms around him and makes sure he's all right, like visibly checking him over to make sure he's not marked. And she's looking around as if somebody, you know, checking to see, make sure nobody else is there. At this point, she then makes a really snotty remark about Bob and Lisa not looking after their kids properly, like not keeping an eye on the kid. And Lisa says, like, didn't your kids run through the house? She had like a few boys or whatever. And Mrs. Mrs. McHenry replied, not as much as you'd expect. And as she's walking away, she mumbles to herself, we weren't exactly told the whole story when we bought this house. Later on, when Bob and Mr. McHenry are like settling things up in the kitchen, they're just talking about like, you know, Bob is saying like, oh my God, I love the house. It's so big and elegant and all this. And I I have pictures in this book that I'll show you as well, because it is, it's a nice house. And at this point, Mr. McHenry is just agreeing with him. And he says, oh, yeah, like, we even celebrated mass in the house. Our boys had their first communion right there in the living room. So Bob, this, like, catches Bob off guard, and he asks him why. And Mr. McHenry seems to realize what he just said, and he starts to, like, kind of flounder. And at this point, in walks Mrs. McHenry, and she just said, come on, let's get this over and done with. Like, sort out the paperwork. So Bob just puts it down to, like, maybe some odd Irish Catholic tradition taking first holy communion in the house at this point i'm just going to give like a tiny little profile on each of the family members each of the crown members that is so bob is the dad author of this book and main person in this story it's told from his point of view his personal experiences lisa is the mom and like obviously bob's partner wife like partner in crime though she goes into like business with him she helps him out a lot Jessica is the eldest child, very easygoing, smart child, very logical, and is described as a little mother when she was a child. Bobby, not Bob, Bobby, he was a blue baby, which means, they explain this in the book, I didn't know this, which means they had to insert a tube into his lungs to clear out fluid swallowed during his birth. Mm. So he was literally born blue from lack of oxygen that's so crazy yeah and he was not an easy baby like straight from the get-go i think they had a really good time with jessica you know her being the first child and all this and she would like sleep no problem and then all of a sudden bobby comes along and he's a little fucking demon (laughs) (laughs) in a nice way obviously no but they they even said like before he was six months old he would climb out of his crib every night so it got to the point where Bob had to literally tie him into his crib. Like he got like, he said terry cloth. I don't know what that is, but I'm assuming it's like soft. So he would tie it around his ankles. <laughs> yeah. And, and then they had to give him two bottles. If they didn't give him two full bottles while he was going to the bed, that was like not a hope. That's so funny. My aunt used to tie my hands together because I used to knock shit over <laughs> in my walker. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then I got a broom. Like, because my hands were tied together in front of me, but it left me enough space to grab a broom handle. And with the broom handle, I'd use that to knock things over. That's using your head. Yeah. So, initially, Bob would only have to tie one ankle, 
but then Bobby managed to get the knot off with his other foot, so he ended up being having both legs tied to uh, the crib to stop him from climbing out. And then at night, then they'd go back around and untie him when he was asleep. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. Um, after Bobby, there was David, and he is described as sensitive, vulnerable, caring. He had a severe speech impediment when he was very young, which required a lot of therapy, speech therapy. But Jessica used to translate for him. Oh. Yeah. When he was like two or three, she just knew what he was saying. That's cute. <laughs> yeah. But this kid grew up, had a heart of gold. Bob says in the book, like he would befriend the poorer children in his class, like 30 kids and kids with like special needs and stuff like that. And mm. he ended up going on to volunteer an awful lot as a teenager and stuff. Oh. And then there's Charlie. He was the baby. But literally, Bob was scheduled for a vasectomy. There were like three kids is enough. And then the day of the vasectomy comes up and Lisa changes her mind. <laughs> yeah. And they end up having Charlie. And he was an absolute mommy's boy. Loved Batman and was extremely close to David, the next brother up. That's cute. Sound oh, yeah. like They all sound like good kids. For the most part. We'll, we'll get into it. Uh, um (laughs) but as well like that's a nice way to say you're wrong (laughs) (laughs) another thing though that uh he says because obviously it's a book about his family so he's gonna Mm -hmm. talk about his family a lot him and uh lisa were told initially like they were very unlikely to have any kids whoa yeah and then you know he got another sign from god and like i said the book is very preachy yeah and after we do this i do plan on reaching out to bobby is quite active so i'm not trying to shit on anything i'm just saying it's very christian oriented or whatever yeah so december 12th 1988 moving day everyone is excited nervous all that good stuff bob says everything just seemed perfect he bought a new car he got a new job this is his new house he was like you know this is the tits like i've made it you know Bobby doesn't want to go exploring with the rest of the kids. But Bob just puts it down to the sheer size of the house. And, you know, thinking, like, I was just worried or nervous or something. And he says, like, he could totally relate because even Bob himself, like, that night when they were the first night in the house, it just seemed, like, really cavernous and just big and scary, basically. that They weren't used to it. But that night when Bob and Lisa are going around to check on each of the kids, they go into Bobby's room and he's not there. So they find him in the closet with the lights on fast asleep. And they're like, okay. You know, again, thinking, oh, it's a smaller space. Maybe he felt more comfortable. But it wasn't just that night. This went on for around a year after they initially moved into the house. And it, like they eventually just moved his little bed and all in there. They were like, all right, well, this is his room now. Kind of reminds me, actually, remember Bender from Futurama? Oh, yeah. And it, was, it kind of reminded me of Louise. Louise Belcher. Oh, yeah, from Bob's Burgers, yeah. yeah living in the closet. So, shortly after moving in, Bob gets talking to one of his colleagues whose father grew up a few blocks from the house. And this guy says to him, Oh, so you bought the haunted house, did you? And Bob says, No. I didn't buy that house. That house is a block away and down the street. 
So his colleague says, well, my father always believed that the house you live in is haunted as well. And he goes on to tell Bob that in the 30s, when this guy's dad was younger, Bob's house stood empty and his father and a friend had gone into that house, 3406. When they got in, I don't know whether they broke in or it was just kind of run down or whatever, but something scared them back out of the house and they never went back in again. So I just thought it was interesting that it was a very similar story to Bob and his mate. Yeah. So anyway, around this time, I don't know whether it was because of this story or what, but Bob's mom recommends that they get a priest in to bless the house. Like, that's a very common thing for Catholic people. Anyway, I'm assuming most Christian folk, God-fearing people and all that shit. And just people in general, like, would sage the new house and do whatever. So I didn't I didn't really think anything weird about that. But when the priest gets there, uh, he's going from room to room, saying his prayers, blessing the house, holy water in the corners and all that. And I, I don't know if they use incense for that, but anyway, when he gets to Bobby's room, Bobby throws an absolute freaker, starts screaming, throwing a tantrum flat out, refuses to let this priest into his room. His room, for the record, is called, is called the Blue Room. And the priest, like, probably just not wanting to put up with this little shit, just says, ah, like, it's it's fine. We'll just do the rest of the house and not worry about it. And they all kind of just put it down to Bobby's around two at this stage. It's like, ah, oh, he's just being a baby and throwing a tantrum. Oh, yeah, and I will say, at this point, we're literally going to cover about 14 or 15 years quite briefly. And the main, the bulk of the story will be probably next episode, definitely. But it happens in the early 2000s. Mm. So I'm just going to try and fly through this and get to that. So they had moved in December. And sometime that spring, Bob is outside planting flowers in the front garden. And he uncovers a small metal box buried about six inches in the soil. It looked like it hadn't been there that long. And when he opened it, he found a set of rosary beads and some religious medals. So obviously he's a little bit confused and concerned and he calls the McHenry's. And he's just asking, like, what the fuck is this all about? And this is a quote from the book. They told me forcefully to just put it back exactly where I found it, refusing to elaborate further on the matter. This coincided with the first of the paranormal activity that Bob and his family experienced. There was a big coat closet under the stairs and every morning Bob would go to get his coat and the light in the closet was a pull chain light. I'm doing all sorts of gestures here. Looks like you're milking a cow. Yeah, all (laughs) sorts of gesticulating uh, for Dulce's benefit only, I guess, since nobody can see me. But anyway, in this coat closet, there is a pull chain light. You know, you pull the chain the light comes on bob would get his stuff and then pull it turn it off again simple but every night when he came back he'd go to put his coat back in the closet and the chain would be wrapped around the light or meticulously twisted around one of the small screws which held the glass shade on to the bulb so bob thought it was lisa or one of the kids like you know just pulling it and letting it fly but the kids couldn't reach it and Lisa just said she wasn't doing that. So <laughs> She can't be asked. She has like four fucking kids. That's the least of Lisa's problems, let me tell you. 
we'll get more into that soon so this is a what happens next is a really good example of like bob's thought process in general and just his personality um because first he tries to think of all the possible reasons why this is actually happening and next he tries a little exper experiment so he leaves the tra chain hanging perfectly in the morning tells lisa not to go fucking near the closet all day don't touch the closet <laughs> and yet when he returns the chain is all fucked up again so he then finds a solution ties a wire to the chain ties the wire to the coat hook problem solved the chain can no longer be meticulously wrapped around little screws and they blame it now on what they're referring to as the friendly ghost because this is all that's happening and it stops fucking with the chain so hey presto again it's bob's book he talks an awful lot about his career and stuff like that i'm trying to uh what's the word stay on course trying to stay yeah i th i'll touch on it briefly and then try not to get too bogged down in the matter so bob was a very driven person he just didn't seem to know what he was being driven towards he desperately wanted to be a preacher at one point but whatever happened it just wasn't for him and he had left his job in the army where he was like a something to do with communications and this and that so he ended up getting a job with at&t and yada 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 but when he moved back to brentville he ended up becoming a politician and like i said the book covers everything in detail but i'm only mentioning it because when he became a politician he was a republican in a big democratic town and there was nothing but corruption heavy mob involvement all the cops were involved the mayor knew what was going on all this stuff so now he does also paint himself out as fucking superman but anyway so from the get-go his thing was i'm gonna take down the current police and get actual decent people in there and you know he he did an awful lot for uh, minorities and stuff like that so the black vote got him in basically at one point he gets tipped off on an abandoned mall and when he shows up he finds out that it's not actually abandoned at all but it was actually a fully functioning illegal casino so he goes in and it's like not just a few guys playing cards this is all the machines the lights everything yeah and so he goes to the cops and he's like we got to get this thing sorted out and the cops laugh at him and say oh go tell the mayor man like he's making all the profit off this basically <laughs> You tell the mayor not to make money. Yeah. So all the cops are being paid off. The mayor. So he goes to the state police. And they're like. Legit. They come in and start buckling down and all that. But because of this. And I'm sure whatever else was going on. He made a lot of enemies. In the police force. And everywhere else. By the sounds of things. So when he was first getting his campaign started. Obviously this is back before all that goes on but he was out jogging one night and it's a friday night he's literally jogging along brownsville road and he sees three goons i guess from the democrats going around yard to yard taking down all of his campaign signs and posters and stuff so he confronts them he was about 30 something at, at the time and he gets the shit kicked out of him but like not just like a couple of black eyes or anything like that he actually ended up in hospital for a week 
needing facial reconstructive surgery. Whoa. The police obviously never found out who the guys were mm. because, you know, oh, you, whatever. But this was just one piece of a larger puzzle. The week before he got beat up, the furnace cracked, which flooded the basement. The TV blew and then Bobby's appendix burst. Whoa. But just wait, right? What made this bizarre series of unfortunate events even more strange was that young Bobby suddenly came down with a fever and started to vomit. He never once complained of any pain, anything like he was just unwell. Lisa was really worried, but Bob was like, oh, it's, it's a kid. You know what I mean? He's just sick. He's got a bug or something. And he said, look, if it's still like bothering you in the morning, call the doctor and ask him what to do. So the next morning, same situation. She calls the doctor and the doctor's like, oh, same as Bob. He's a kid. He's fine. If he's not complaining, leave him be. On Saturday, they find him lying on the bathroom floor and they just rushed into the hospital where he was immediately looked at by the doctor. And the doctor said straight away, this kid needs surgery. His appendix has already burst. Again, this kid never said a word about being in pain. Nothing. He was just suffering silently. That poor thing. Yeah, he was only six years old at the time. So, thankfully... That he got the surgery and he was okay but with all of this shit that was going on lisa had already had enough she was like what the fuck are we doing here like everybody hates you <laughs> um <laughs> you suck <laughs> yeah. um and like all this shit is happening like let's just get out of here and start fresh somewhere else yeah but lisa was from the country somewhere like from the countryside rather Whereas this was Bob's hometown and he really felt like he was here to like clean shit up and get yeah. Brentwood back to what it used to be. And he wanted to pursue this political career. So in 1995, Bob and Lisa moved into the blue room, which was Bobby's bedroom. They moved in while Bob was redecorating the master bedroom and Bobby like there was tons of rooms in this house. So he was just staying in another room. So is this the closet room or is this the blue room where he was originally supposed to be in? No, so the closet was in the blue room. Oh, okay. You know I what I mean? So he was nearby probably. Yeah, like it, the house isn't that big. Oh, okay. You know, but either way, he was, he was no longer in the blue room. Bob and Lisa were. Okay. Now, up until this point, Lisa had been... Like you were saying, she had the four kids to look after. She managed the budget for the house. She was the treasurer of the local Republican Party committee when Bob was chairman. She was on the school board. Damn. Yeah, eventually she became president of the school board. She managed all the door-to-door campaigns for Bob, political mailers. She organized fundraisers and God knows what else. Like She was a busy woman. Yeah. When they moved into the blue room, she almost immediately became detached forgetful disorganized the house literally didn't fall into disarray but it was messy and chores weren't getting done and you know bob used to go off for oh i'm going on a business meeting and or i'm going for a jog yeah i'm gonna go get the shit kicked out of me but he'd be gone for like days on end uh. doing his political shit whatever business people do i don't fucking know anyway bob just thought like hey she's taking on too much this is you know she needs a break 
and she suggests that she resign from the school board, which she did, but this seemed to make matters worse. So Bob told her to take the kids up to their lake house for a few days, and while she was gone, he had a little snoopy snoop in the room, and he finds a large box full of envelopes, which contained six to eight months worth of unpaid bills. Oh. Debt collection agencies, uh, foreclosure proceedings on the house. She had literally paid the bare minimum, like gas, electricity, water. So nobody noticed anything, but that was literally all she had done. Now, a lot of this book is written in hindsight. Like he, at the time, he didn't fucking think, oh, well, we just moved into the blue room six months ago and all this stuff. It was, you know, years later when they're thinking back, like, oh, shit, this is, you know, when this happened. So he calls her back from the lake house and confronts her and she just breaks down saying she just couldn't cope with all the pressure of everything. And even though she was involved with all these things, she still felt completely isolated. She had no friends in Brentwood. And she just told Bob, she said, you don't know what it's like for us to live here. Like, again, for Bob, it was great. You know, knew everyone was involved in everyone's business and all, but his family were suffering. So obviously this was a sensitive matter, but Bob was still thinking of his career and he couldn't have any of this information leaked out to the public for fear of what would be said about him. You know, oh, like this politician is losing his house can't keep his house in check whatever i don't fucking know but through connections he had made he got lisa in with like a top psychiatrist in the city and he sent her away to a psychiatric hospital for like two weeks and i don't know is this a common thing here what like just being sent off to a psychiatric unit no okay because we'll get into it but i just wanted to make sure no people just go to the therapist like they go to the gym it's just a regular thing that they do but they don't get committed or commit themselves yeah because that's what this family seemed to do like as well as regular therapy like and i mean it was the psychiatrist that recommended she take a break anyway so on speaking of his political career the kids would say stuff like oh you go off and do all this important stuff and we have to live here in brentwood where everyone hates you they hate us too they even changed the kids' schools to try and alleviate the bullying, but it didn't help. And a really sad example of what they were dealing with was when young Bobby was turning 11. Lisa sent out invitations to his entire class and only one kid showed up. Aww. His little cousin, Joseph. <sighs> that broke my fucking heart. That's I don't care so how horrible a kid is. Not that Bobby was horrible or anything like that. I mean, like, even little bully kids and all. No one showing up to the... Uh, birthday party is the worst thing yeah and then the parents i'm pretty sure they had a lot to do with that oh yeah no it's entirely the parents because the parents are saying oh you know don't go hanging around with them that that's a cranmer boy they said that from the time they moved into the house at least one of the kids would get scared at night and come in to sleep with bob and lisa and then i'm gonna read directly from the book for years we would experience things like all of the lights being turned on in the basement when we got up in the morning And when we went downstairs to check on the wood burner, occasionally the radio would be turned on and playing in the workshop area. On a regular basis throughout the winter, when I would come down in the morning to check the fire, a chair chair that should have been at my workbench was sitting in the center of the room facing the wood burner. 
Lisa and I would laugh this off and attribute it to Casper the Friendly Ghost. The children would tell us that they would hear walking and knocking outside of their bedroom doors in the hallway and that it would wake them up in the middle of the night. We would dismiss this and tell them that they were dreaming, even though I knew that they were not making it up. I didn't know what else to say. One night the kids had friends staying overnight and they were still watching the television after Lisa and I had gone to bed. Across the dining room from the kids' TV room in the foyer is a five-foot pocket door that they had closed since we were upstairs sleeping. Bobby was coming out of the kitchen, which also leads into the dining room, when all of a sudden they heard pounding on the closed pocket door. He and one of his friends opened the door and walked into the foyer and said that it felt like they'd walked into a meat freezer. There was another door right there that opens to a set of servant stairs that lead to both floors above. It sounded as if something were running down the stairs at them in the dark, so they ran back into the TV room and shut the door behind them. Needless to say, those friends never slept over again. On another occasion, one of the kid's friends said that he saw a misty black figure standing in the bathroom through the doorway as he was walking down the steps. He said it looked like the Grim Reaper. Throughout the years, these things would happen occasionally and all I could do was to downplay them and tell the kids it was their imagination. I obviously knew different, but it wasn't like these were daily events and again, it all seemed harmless at the time. So the family's emotions were all over the place from the time they started living there. And as the boys grew older, they would have physical fights, even though they were and still are a very close-knit family. And Bob said like he could flip out over the smallest, most insignificant thing. But when you say physical fights, like all the boys in the family would beat each other. Yeah, like they ended up like that's what. Yeah. And we'll go, get more into it. Like, but um, yeah, Bob used to always just blame it on, you know, oh, I'm stressed out from work or this or that, you know, what the fuck? I'm stressed out from work. So I'm going to beat my kid. Well, no, not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that always flies. Not necessarily Bob, but he was saying like he, he had a temper on him, though. And this next little bit is a direct quote from Bobby from the book. Cool. I was in fifth grade and I had stayed home from school sick. My mom took all my siblings to school and then she went to the pharmacy. I was in bed looking out the window. I heard a strange noise, something like bagpipes playing. The noise got louder and louder and then the door to my room opens and this thing comes into my room. It was made out of what looked like static or lightning bolts. It was in the shape of a kid's body but with no face. It then seemed to hop or skip into my room, stood at the foot of my bed and then it went back out the door. I stared at the door and then this dark figure that I can only compare to the image of the Grim Reaper ran past the door. As I stared at the door in shock, I saw a hand stick out with a black robe on its arm. As I'm staring at the hand reaching into the doorway, I pulled my blankets over my head in terror. Then the blankets were ripped out of my hands and flew to my feet, folded perfectly. I looked up and there was another figure floating above me. It was looking down at me. If you took a human body and turned it into a light bulb, that's what it looked like. There were no facial features, just a light bulb person. I closed my eyes and screamed really loud and it all stopped. I lay in bed until my mom got home, but didn't say anything. 
I felt total terror, like I was going to die. So it's around this time that the activity starts to ramp up. And one thing I noticed as well, it kind of ramps up and then fades away and then gets worse and comes back, you know, like yeah. ebbs and it flows. Ebbs and flows, yeah. Yeah, so around this time as well, Jessica, who really didn't, um, Jessica really didn't like experience any traumatic paranormal activity that I can recall anyway. Yeah. But she did start to experience sleep paralysis around this time very often. I mean, I'd say. Yeah, and the thing is, when these things were happening, the kids weren't saying anything. Yeah. This is only in years later they would think backing and be like oh my god did they ever mention why they never said anything you know because like obviously they this book is also a collection of the reflections of the the children that lived in the house well i guess now adults but did they ever mention why do you know no not really and well i don't not that i can recall off the like top of my head but I think it might have just been a fear thing. Mm. You know what I mean? That and like these incidents happened. Like they were almost all isolated and few and far between. It was like something would happen. It was scary. Yeah. But if they just didn't speak about it, maybe they thought it wouldn't happen again. Mm. Whereas Jessica with the sleep paralysis. I mean, I had sleep paralysis when I was a kid and I never told anyone. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure you probably didn't have it as often as she did. Maybe not. Yeah. So up until this point they were all calling or well bob and lisa were calling the ghost casper the friendly ghost yeah as a joke but it was around this time when that all like kind of stopped i think from now on they would just blame what would they all call it like asshole the scary ghost <laughs> <laughs> no um basically from now on they just blame any of the strange activity on the entity oh. because they like what the fuck else would you call it you know very ominous yeah i like it so now the entity started to reveal itself to bob in particular but everyone could would get these smells of (laughs) what (laughs) everyone would get these uh this like burning rubber mixed with sulfur like they smell it in the air you mean yeah like Um. and it could like come out of nowhere and it was so localized that they could literally pinpoint where it was coming from. Yeah, as in down to like the space yeah. that a person would take up. Yeah. So Bob said it was like as if someone's BO or like bad breath. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that's how close. Now, it you could smell it far away, yeah. but it would get stronger and stronger to the point where they could pinpoint it. That's crazy. And so they were able to know where it was because of this smell. Mm. And this next thing is so weird, but I found it really interesting because Lisa and Jessica both smelled this smell, but I don't think anybody else did. It was only the two girls. Mm. The smell that they got, as well as the sulfur and burning rubber, was a an amniotic or birth fluid smell. What? Yeah. How did Jessica know what that smelled like? I don't know, but I'm pretty sure the two of them did. Lisa... 100% did of course and um now Bob did say like they also kind of described it as like a an extremely strong smell of piss basically oh god yeah but again this only seemed to come to Lisa and Jessica and mo- mostly Lisa 
Especially when she was in the house on her own, like she could be down. So, doing the- so they all smelled sulfur. The two girls smelled ambiotic birth fluid and yeah. Bob smelled piss. No, no, no. That's, I think, how he... How he describes it. Yeah, the amniotic oh. fluid. I think it was just to give a comparison. Like Gross. So if we have kids, the fluid is going to be covered and it's going to smell like piss. I have no idea. That's gross. Yeah, it is pretty gross. <laughs> so they were all experiencing things by now, but they still weren't talking openly about it. Through Bob's political career, he became friends with the head nun from the Passionist Order convent, which was local to him. And basically, these nuns took a vow of silence, but the main, like the mother, was allowed to talk. And Bob would receive all these, you know, big gifts and baskets and shit like that, especially around the holidays Uh and like donations and shit like that from different companies. Well, he would get them. Yeah, Bob would. I thought everybody hated him. Yeah, but he was still a politician. Like companies and stuff would send it to him. Oh, okay. Sorry, I, I don't know how any of that works. He It would literally be too much stuff to bring home and it would just go to waste. So instead of bringing it home, he brought it to the convent hmm. and they just had a little hatch because they were silent nuns. I don't know if they could talk to each other, but anyway. No, I don't think so. Well, anyway, he would just put the stuff in the hatch and it was like a revolving thing. What? Yeah, so usually he would put it in, flip it around, whatever. <laughs> but he ended up doing it quite a lot. And then in particular at Christmas time, he would like buy them a Christmas dinner and then give them all this other shit. And so it ended up being, he was standing at this door for fucking ages, like, you know, putting things through and and (laughs) bits and bobs. That's cool. And so then the, the the mother Mary, I think was her name. She came out to say like, thank you and whatever. And after that, he ended up going to their like little private chapel every Saturday morning for mass. And it was split into two. They was like, one for regular lay people and then one side was for the nuns who couldn't talk he also ended up doing a fuck ton of work there like gardening and building shit like they were really taking the piss honestly yeah but he was happy to do it so and he even bought them a copy of mel gibson's passion of the christ when it came out in i think 2004 really yeah and did they like that loved it yeah yeah Um, anyway, so April 2001, Jessica, who was pride and joy, basically, of the family, like, yeah. they had plans to, of her becoming a lawyer and all this shit. She gets pregnant at 16. Oh. Yeah. And, you know, typical reactions to a 16 year old getting pregnant, but she decides that she's going to keep the baby. Mm. She has a little baby boy, Colin, and she does really well. She is a really good example of a teenage mom she goes back to school when it's time lisa gets a new job and bob's mom takes care of little colin during the day while everybody's out jessica at this point moves up to what they call the apartment which it's just the third floor of the house but it it has its own like little kitchenette and stuff like that i think at the time it was built it was made purposely for like servants and stuff okay so they could live up separate from the the actual house. And yeah, to me, it sounds sounds like a fucking great idea. Yeah, it does. <laughs> so Bobby, on the other hand, had seemingly overnight 
he quit the football team, dyed his hair bright red, and began to listen to, quote, extreme death metal band. <laughs> so he was around what, 15. What's his uh, definition of extreme metal bands? Like My Chemical Romance? <laughs> Honestly, that's what I've been thinking the whole time. I'd say like... Oh, I actually have a point down here. I said part of me is really picturing him just being a huge Kiss fan. <laughs> but because Bob is such a Christian that he thinks it's all devil music. <laughs> he then, just wants to rock and roll all night. Made for love. <laughs> yeah, party every day. What if we rock and roll all night and part of every day? Um, <laughs> but yeah, anyway, he was around 15 at this stage. And he had recently moved back into the blue room. So there's a lot of moving in and out of different rooms. And he had also covered the walls with band posters, which I mean, me too. But Bob, again, being a God-fearing man, had claimed the posters looked like they had been printed in capital H, hell. Uh, I didn't know there was a font. I mean, it's a, it is a definite location, you know, you have to put a capital letter at the start of a, a town or city. I and guess. That's like, that kind of just reminds me of like the old school way of thinking where like, you know, unfortunately some ladies and some guys, like older dudes are like, oh, you know, we just started letting our little girl paint her nails, but we won't let her paint her nails red because that's a whore's color. Yeah, <laughs> she's not a whore, Mary. <laughs> um, anyway, but he was, Bobby was really taking the turn for the worse. It, it wasn't just Bob overreacting, I don't think. Uh, he started to become extremely aggressive towards Lisa and Bob. And he was caught shoplifting CDs. And like a lot of it was typical teenage stuff, but he was just taking it that bit further. David and Charlie followed suit. Remember, Bobby is their older brother. Yeah. And so they started copying him. And Bob confronted David, who was the sensible brother, one night. And he kind of like made fun of him a little bit. He was like, take these stupid bracelets off and... You know, what have you done to your hair? And Oh, I hate that shit. Yeah, but David listened to him and he kind of was like, yeah, you know what? You're right. Stopped. Yeah. But Charlie was like balls to the wall for it. Yeah. Just I a couple of little goth kids or whatever. When people would tell me to do shit like that. <laughs> like, what? Uh, 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 you I know. know, like, I know. stop it. Like, <laughs> uh. like I think my favorite when i was younger i had one red converse and one black converse and i would wear red laces in the black converse and black laces in the red oh, like converse that. and mix match my shoes yeah that was about as rebellious as i got really with oh. well clothes wise in it bobby and charlie claimed that they kind of were accepted into this you know i guess new gang like of goth kids or whoever yeah, they're um, my friends yeah like it was the scene for them yeah and they said like everybody else hated them because of their names or because of the family name oh basically they were just fitting the mold that was given to them basically yeah and now they were i guess being accepted by this they finally found friends well yeah. that's nice if you, especially when you when you go back to what you had said when no one showed up to their fucking birthday parties and now they get to have friends and shit you know yeah and like bobby even had like a nice girlfriend and stuff like that but he was still, like, his behavior was just getting worse and worse. Mm. Over the next couple of years, um, again, he just went a little further than that te typical teenage uh, shit. Like, he would steal the family car at night, 
when everyone was asleep and he would go driving around with no license. He would disappear for days at a time. And at one point, Bob threatens to send him to boarding school. Now, he had done summer school in this boarding school and Bob reckons it did him the world of good. But when he said, when he was told he was going to be sent there permanently, he just shut down. He didn't leave his room for, I guess, weeks. He blacked out all the windows with blankets and stuff like that. And he would only, or the only time he ever left the room was to just go out and not tell anybody where he was going. And, you know, they just didn't know what was going on with him. I was obviously crying for help. Yeah. He'd also started self-harming and he caught himself so badly one night. He slid his wrists as far as I can make out. And they actually did have to call an ambulance and took him to hospital. But what I thought was strange about all of this was that when he was taken from the house, he was totally different. Mm. And this is a the perfect example is from the book. On Sunday, September 14th, this is 2003, Bob and Bobby, who was 18 at this point, had had a grand weekend together. Bob had taken Bobby and Charlie to a baseball game on the Friday and had a great time and on sunday evening bob and bobby went off just the two of them for a drive in bob's new convertible and again really nice bonding time they get home and within an hour there is this fucking blow up in the house bobby had gone and had a shower and he left the place in a mess like just towels and water everywhere i guess i don't know so this became a full-on fist fight And Bob really struggled because like that, Bobby is 18 years old and he had recently been put on some sort of medication to help with his um, depression and whatnot. And this caused him to pile on weight, like 25, 30 pounds over the course of the summer. So I guess Bob just really wasn't ready for this. Bobby knocks Bob to the ground. Charlie shows up. And starts joining in, punching Bob. So (laughs) the two boys now are punching the shit out of the dad. Wow. And then David comes around and sees his dad getting beat on. So tries to just split everything up. I don't know where Lisa is at this stage. I assume she's just standing there horrified. So anyway, David's trying to get help. So at the situation now. But Charlie, in the meantime, gets up and calls 911. Saying that their dad's lost the plot. And this next piece is an excerpt from the Trib Live archives, which is a West Pennsylvania newspaper. Police were called to the Cranmer home on Brownsville Road about 11.30 p.m. and found Bob Cranmer Jr., Bobby, in the kitchen with wounds to his hands, arms, face and back, according to court documents. The young man was semi-conscious and could not respond to the police questions, the document said. The fight carried them through at least three rooms of the home before another son, Charles, 14, called 911. The elder Cranmer said Bob Jr. was subdued while trying to attack his father with a butcher knife. So Bob spent the night in jail and was released without bail the next morning on the condition that he was not allowed to return to the house for 10 weeks. But the police, in the meantime, had called the newspapers because, remember, the police were not his friends. Oh, yeah. So they wanted to spread the goss. Yeah. To make matters worse, Lisa had met Bob somewhere and like given him fresh clothes and all that. And Bob went to his gym and had a shower and got freshened up because he still had to go to work. 
And when Bob finally gets to work, he gets a phone call from Lisa saying Bob's aunt basically had been living with them since Bob's mother had passed away like the year before. And Lisa had just found the aunt dead in her bed upstairs. Whoa. So she had died at some stage during the night. Yeah. I th- like, I think just of old age, you know yeah. what I mean? Like nothing fucking mm-hmm. drastic. But because the police had alerted the media to the fight, there was all TV crews outside the house, mm-hmm. you know, getting the fucking morning scoop. There was even a helicopter circling over the house. And the next thing, an ambulance shows up while all these fucking TV cameras and shit are there. Yeah. And But it's the ambulance is taking this poor Elwin out. Yeah. Who has died. It was an absolute shit show. And like that, Bob had to stay away from the house for the next like, two, weeks. nearly three months. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And when his brother went over just to check in on everybody, see how it was getting, everyone was getting on. He said that the house felt evil and that Bobby and Charlie were acting gleeful. That wasn't meant to rhyme, but it just kind of did. And they showed no remorse whatsoever. It was like they were as happy as pigs and shit because of what happened almost. Hmm. Like I said, Bob was away from the house at this stage. He was actually debating divorcing Lisa and just like splitting the whole thing up, like giving up on the house and everything because he said that Lisa was on the kid's side during the fight. Yeah. Anyway, later, Bobby said that the house affected their lives and that as soon as you walked in, it just changed you. Yeah. Bob also said that when this fight was happening... That Bobby sounded different. His voice was deeper and he showed immense strength. But again, that could just be attributed to the fact that he had put on, you know... All the weight. 25 pounds over a short period and... And he's 18. And he's 18. He's probably never actually heard his kid scream like that, you know? Yeah. Or even just be in a fight. I don't know. Anyway, they they get family counselling over the next two months while he's living away from the house. But it's from the pastor at their Baptist church which is like the family church at the time and possibly from a real counselor. I don't know whether it was like real therapy and then the Christian therapy. Yeah. But either way, Bob confided in the pastor during one of their sessions. He said there was something more to this than just teen angst and rebelliousness saying, I'm afraid that my son may be under the influence of a demonic force. When he told me he was going to kill me during the fight, he sounded like another person and he sounded serious. Now, the pastor just almost laughed at him. Oh, that's like, nice. That's what you want to hear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he was extremely condescending and patronizing. And to a certain extent, Bob like understood that, yeah, this sounds crazy. But here I am, like confessing this thing that yeah. I have been feeling like this whole time. Mm-hmm. But I will note that this is the first mention of demon, as far as I'm aware. Okay. And between the pastor kind of being a dickhead and all the gossip that's going around anyway, they stopped attending that church. He said it was very cliquish and now they were very much the outcasts. Yeah. So Bob moves back in. This is all around Christmas time, 2003. And... Just after Christmas is when the activity like spikes again. Bob goes to grab his coat from the closet and heads out. But less than a minute later, like he literally puts the coat on, walking out the door, realizes he's forgot his gloves. 
goes back to grab them. When he reaches for the light chain, it's wrapped around the top of the light. This hadn't happened for a long time and it was a real fuck you, basically. Yeah. It was like such a small thing, but it was, I don't know, I'm back, baby. (laughs) Yeah. So the next day he ties some rosary beads to the chain and returns to find them all wrapped around the light again. Hmm. He pulls them down straight and goes off to eat lunch, then checks back again and finds the rosary beads hanging on a coat hook and the chain wrapped around the light. So how much of a fuck you is that? Right? It's like, no, thank you. I'll just... Yeah, oh, sorry. You myself. left these here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very passive aggressive. Yeah, goals. yeah. But it's saying something that it could manipulate the rosary beads like this, right? This yeah. entity. You think maybe it might have been Bobby who was just being an asshole to his dad? If that's the case, then this whole story has been busted. <laughs> no, I mean, like, he's probably like, I remember dad used to always complain about this fucking string. So. Oh, no, because remember, Bob and Lisa never mentioned any of this to the kids. Oh. So Bob, being Bob, experimented with different items. He'd tie something on, come back, like he had, like, little weights or something. And he came back and that he would just find it all wrapped around the light again. But the only thing that had actually been taken off was the beads, the rosary beads. So he does what any sane person would do. He gets into the closet, closes the door and, and starts waits. reading Bible verses out loud to the light, to the light, basically. Wow. He repeats this in sessions of around 30 minutes at a time. Yeah. And he says, even though he felt like he was not alone, uh-huh. And he was filled with a sensation of dread. Now, I don't know. Again, this is the first time he kind of mentions that. So I don't know whether it's just because he's already creeping himself out. But I mean, yeah. Like, there's a purpose. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't go into a room and start doing that shit. Yeah, well, so. People normally do that in bed. You know, they read their verses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They don't yeah. do it like offense or like defensively. Yeah, that's exactly what he was room. doing. Yeah. You see what so I'm saying? He said like it just it felt horrible, but he powered through and he would take a little break and then go back in. Yeah. And then the last time he leaves the closet, he decides like I'm gonna leave the light on and open the door. And remember, they've got like a big foyer. It's not just like a little corridor. Yeah. And he walks away. And stands in the foyer watching. And for I don't know why he didn't stand where he could see the light. But he hears the chain moving on its own. And goes back to find it wrapped around the light. Oh, so he heard it. Yeah. Oh. So he That's calls creepy. his... Yeah. <laughs> so he calls his nun friend, Mother Maria. And as soon as she hears about the rosary bead, she tells him, look, this sounds demonic. And... She refers him to her pals at St. Paul of the Cross Passionist Monastery, which is like the, I guess, brother to the nunnery yeah. <laughs> that she lives in. You know what I mean? They're both of the same order or whatever. But they're segregated. Oh, of course, because yeah. these guys were specially trained in deliverance work. So not exorcism, but deliverance. What's that? Basically, you would get these guys in before you would get an exorcist in. Like, these would be the guys who would be like, oh, we'll try, you know, just blessing your house and do, like, whatever. But they're not actually allowed to perform the exorcism ritual. 
Okay. But they are trained in dealing with infestations and stuff like that. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I think he actually calls them prayer warriors at one point. Mm. And I purposely left it out because I thought it was too cheesy. But there you go. (laughs) So that very night, Bobby comes to his dad and says. What about prayer ninjas? I mean, yeah, maybe prayer ninjas. Yeah. Anything prairie, I guess. Mm. So anyway, Bob, Bobby comes in and he says. Dad, you're not going to believe this. He said, wide-eyed and obviously frightened. I almost got killed by a flying CD. He explained how a few hours earlier, he and his girlfriend, Becky, had gone into his bedroom, which was the blue room, and as he was standing by the door, he heard a loud pop behind him. Something had whizzed right by his head, slammed into the wall and exploded. They looked and saw the shattered remains of the CD lying on the floor. This disc flew at him as if it had been shot out of a gun and hit the wall with such force that it left an imprint in the plaster. Damn. If it had been one inch closer to Bobby's head, it might have done him serious injury. Oh, yeah. This next point I thought was really interesting. It was also a CD that had disappeared some weeks earlier. He thought he had lost it. And then it literally, that pop. Yeah. This is my own personal theory. Is, um... Like, I've heard of people describing this weird pop when things, like, apparate, basically, yeah. or disapparate. And it's goes along with the whole poltergeist thing. But anyway, so I, that's why I thought the pop was really fucking cool. Because I've heard in people discussing poltergeist cases that they would hear this, like, random noise would go off right by their ear. And so something would land on the floor or something. That That kind of makes me think that poltergeist activity has very strong links to parallel universe yeah like that's i don't know this is way above my pay grade but you know that's definitely where i'd be coming along it's like because when the stuff disappears nobody knows where it goes right or like in say like the enfield haunting when there was lego being thrown yeah and it was just appearing and disappearing yeah but anyway and I have highlighted here as well that Bobby still has no idea about the chain in the closet. Okay. Which was only happening that day. It's like you know I was going to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> so. Or like I was going to tell you. It was Bobby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So at this point, Bob just grabs his Bible, walks up to the blue room and starts doing the same shit again. Yeah. Spouting off Bible verses. And basically it was just his way. He didn't know what he was doing. Yeah. Admittedly, he didn't know, but he just felt a little bit less helpless. Yeah. You know, he was like, well, I have my faith, so this is what I do. And to be fair, if something fucking mad spooky like that happened here, I might end up remembering prayers that I had learned as an eight year old. But we would certainly go and grab the sage and light candles and shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's just like an automatic reaction to go, boom, I'm going to go say some prayers yeah and i think that's where we'll leave it for this week i i think a lot of it has to do with our belief that we are it's not to say that we're greater than what we actually are but we do have a connection with whatever the divine is yeah because it's i think it's within us and that's what connects us and that's what connects us to nature 
and the universe and how we're able to manifest, whether it's negative manifestations or positive manifestations and how we can communicate with other manifestations and other energies. I think that's why we would react that way. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just saying like, I don't think everybody would react the same. Yeah. 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 In that, this person who wrote the book has that uh, in common with us, whereas maybe our listeners don't have that in common. Yeah, well, I always joke and say, like, I would just run away. But if it happens in your fucking house, you know what I mean? That's not an option. But or anyway. you probably end up, exp- like, I guess other people could away. explaining it away. You would. You would explain that. that away. Yeah, but if it was something like a CD, just, and then. You would blame it on Max. You'd explain well, yeah, it away. Fucking Max. <laughs> so anyway, this episode has gone particularly long. Yeah. So, yeah. I'll try and wrap this up next week, but it could possibly be a three-parter. Um, I'm trying to not embellish too much, but then there's an awful lot of like random little points that when I was reading the book first time, I was like, what the fuck? Like, but then they come into play in another section. So I'm like, ah, oh, bastard. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think that's it, folks. Well, that's fucking crazy. (laughs) No, but um, I like the way it's playing out. I want to know. Listeners, let us know. Me personally, I the way you're telling this story really paints a picture for me in my head. Yeah. Which I don't know if it's because of the execution or it's because that's just how my brain works. But think you're doing a very good job well thank you i'm not going to take any of the credit for it though because i am like i said this is just a glorified book report have you ever seen a bad book report i've never done a book report before okay i've read some pretty bad papers and let me tell you you could have done a lot worse okay cool (laughs) Um, all right so next week we're going to be discussing themes and pros and no i'm fucking with you i was trying to think of english class things oh i thought you were like pros and believe cons. it or not this guy failed english did you well i did like the pass level and i didn't do great oh i don't mean to toot my own horn but i'm gonna i did fucking amazing <laughs> in english i did so well they put me in advanced english oh yeah well, but no, I, I, I feel like i'm like going downhill because i don't read as much as i should hmm. you know that's one of my hobbies I'm a little boring like that. Well, I was just bad at school. I think dumb is the word for it, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Some would say dumb. (laughs) A rebel without a clue. That's what my cousin used to say. Anyway. (laughs) That's fucking clever. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're getting a little off track here. Yeah. This is a lovely long episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening this far. Yeah. Please don't forget check out Red Bubble, our Red Bubble. Just search Weekly Creep, or follow the link in my bio, in our bio. Um, don't forget to send us your listener stories. We're gonna scale back on them a little bit and just release the monthly listener episode for right now, unless we end up getting way too many where we might do like a bi-monthly thing, but just to kind of shorten the episodes down a little bit. Yeah. I mean, like, it's hard to kind of gauge 
what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong. I personally don't listen to my own, like, I don't listen to these episodes. Um, so, like, I can't give myself feedback. <laughs> yeah, but if it's something that you guys look forward to, let us know and we'll bring it back in. Right now, we just want to make a nice, concise thing. Not like today, where we're just rambling at the end of it. So, don't forget. Yeah. Oh, sorry. What are you going to say? Well, no, I mean, I think it's cool that we ramble on in the end because at this point, it's like, the people that have got come <laughs> to get a story, they've probably tuned off, which is fine. But yeah. if people want to stick around and kind of just hang out with us, they also have that option. Yep, that is true. Especially, you know, this is good to cater to all kinds because, again, we don't have the feedback. Yeah. Um, okay, guys, don't forget to follow us on Instagram. Probably not by the time this comes out, but next week I will have a nice updated Facebook page. I'm going to try and do much better with Facebook because I'm fucking terrible at it right now. I haven't even been on Facebook. It's a shit show. Is it? Yeah. Anyway, thanks again, Lindsay, for our lovely new merch. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's it. Okay, we're going to stop fucking rambling now. Tune in next week for part two. And another surprise from Dulce. Okay. Bye. Bye. I mean, yeah. Like, there's a purpose. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't go into a room and... Start... Doing that shit. Yeah, well... So... People normally do that in bed. You know, <laughs> yeah, they, they yeah, don't yeah. do it, like, offense... Or, like, defensively. Yeah, that's exactly what he was room. doing. Yeah, you see so... What I'm he said like it just it felt horrible but he powered through and he would take a little break and then go back in yeah and then the last time he leaves the closet he decides like i'm gonna leave the light on and open the door 